Web3 came around and in late 2020, I was looking and just curious about the technology. And I realized probably like the heart of what it represented was taking care of the artists and it was about community. I was just like, oh my gosh, it's everything that we've ever wanted to do. And the tools just weren't there. And so we were very patient, you know, the last 10 to 20 years waiting for something like this to come around. And that's why I was, I became so impassioned by the idea because I was like, I've been waiting my entire career for this ability to, you know, be laid out in front of us. And here we are. Today's guest is someone that many are going to know, especially if you were big on the internet anytime in the early 2000s or anytime recently. But even if Bobby Hundreds is a new name to you, there's a pretty good chance you've either seen something he's designed, read something he's written, or definitely been influenced by something he's created. He's been at the helm of one of the biggest brands in streetwear for nearly 20 years, The Hundreds. That's a clothing line he created with his co-founder, Ben, which is one of the earliest streetwear brands to make t-shirts cool again. That's just a small part of the story. Based in Los Angeles, I would say that they're almost entirely responsible for what became the streetwear scene that took over Fairfax and then expanded east to New York. And their global reach and relevance over 15 years later is a real case study that's already a part of university curriculums. Between clothing collaborations with some of the biggest brands and artists on earth like Adidas and Disney and Kenny Sharp, and constantly and consistently creating international trends, they've been able to build this community and a fan base that rivals some major sports teams. And they did all of that while staying completely independent. In 2022, they're thriving. Bobby's now a designer, a director, a best-selling author, and one of the biggest and busiest people in Web3 after releasing one of the biggest NFT projects of last year, the Atom Bomb Squad, which repurposed the hundreds mascot, Atom Bomb, and 25,000 unique NFTs. On this episode, we pack as much of that story into 40 minutes as we possibly could to talk about the investments made along the way that set the table for two decades of success. A quick note, this episode was recorded in February, so there are some topics like the 100 Super Bowl collab and ApeCoin and a ton of other topics in Web3 that probably would have been discussed, but we'll save those for part two, hopefully. As always, this podcast is not intended to be and does not constitute financial advice, and you shouldn't make any decision, financial, investment, trading, or otherwise, based on any of the information presented here without undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a financial advisor. And now, season one, episode two of The Best Money I Ever Spent, presented by Rally with Bobby Hundreds. Bobby, thank you for joining, my friend, and welcome. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. I sincerely appreciate it. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of people on Rally, I think a lot of people who hear this, they know the story of the hundreds to a degree. And it's been told by you and in your books and in blogs and in conversations on Twitter a lot. But I think to start with, you know, what I consider the genesis of so much of streetwear and so much of the communities that have been built to this point with the hundreds in, I'll call it the late 90s. And this is something where a lot of people have heard this story, a couple hundred bucks, you start the brand. Can you give us a quick where it came from and when it became that business, it became the all in moment where you said, this is the career path from here on out. Oh, wow. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I 
whenever people ask me when I knew that I had made it, right? Like, when did you know you'd made it? My response is never, right? <laughs> like, I've never felt like I made it. And in many ways, I hope I actually never get there because that means the journey's over, right? And so like, I don't actually want it to end. I don't ever want to actually reach a destination. So for me, it's always within or just right outside of reach, right? It's like the carrot that's dangling in front of me. If there's a, the moment that I would say is closest or was the closest to me feeling any type of success and true freedom and liberation, it was the day that Ben came to me and said, we are making enough money now to sustain and where we might not need another job, right? And this was two to three years into us building the brand and business. And the money that he was talking about was my rent on my studio apartment in Venice that we ran the, the operations out of was $750 a month. And to be able to cover the cost of rent utilities and to put some food on our table, you know, whatever that is, like 1500 bucks a month. He was like, we could cover that. And I've never felt as rich as I did that day. I swear to God, uh, there's been a lot of money. Numbers have come in and out over almost 20 years of doing this and nothing felt as good, um, you know, or more or better than it did in that moment of making a thousand bucks a month. You know, I got to give you credit too, because back then I've been following the brand for a long time. And I think a lot of people who hear this have been too. And we got a piece of what you were really doing on a day to day. And so much of that journey through your blog early on, which really was, I think, set the table for what a lot of brands feel like they have to do now. But you were perfecting that in a way where to your point, it's like that feeling, I, I, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but it's that feeling of we're doing something great, doing something unique. We're building in public, and over time, this will build and become that business that we know it could be. But in the moment, you don't necessarily feel like it in terms of commerce. You're not trying to make money with it. You're trying to build that community and build that brand and build that feeling. That blog early on, did you ever anticipate that was going to be a part of the business, or was that something that developed with the business? Because now it's this, it's naturally tied to you and to the business and to the hundreds, but that blog early on really opened up a bunch of lanes for people who are watching from a distance. Was that always the plan to have that be a part of the business? It was always a plan for it to be a part of the project, yes. I'd started blogging in 1999. Uh, this is right when Web 1 was toggling to Web 2. So that was like the first cutting edge of what it meant for people to be self-publishers, desktop publishers. There was a website called Blogger that launched Blogspot. And I fell madly in love with it because it was where I had come from in the punk rock subculture, uh, photocopied zines, which was our own way of being our media and owning our own voice. It was a means of doing that, but on a cheaper free level. And I felt like the dissemination of information was just a lot broader. I'd find a, a bigger audience globally. And so I started blogging in the very early 2000s. And so when we were devising our project, I was emphatic. You know, I knew that we had to centralize the brand and this business that we were formulating around this blog because there was something really special about clothing brand or a, a project like this that you could follow along with every day at, with the founders. And I thought that transparency 
and also that personal relationship we can build with our audience, which was really more a community than just a customer base, was so distinct and such a departure from the way that traditional fashion and traditional streetwear had been run. And so from the very first day when we launched our website, which I know this sounds crazy to a lot of people, most brands didn't have a website. If they did, it was just a static informational page. You know, we launched a website, the blog was front and center. It was the end of uh, July, 2003. And that same week we started our physical product, uh, started entering just a few key accounts like streetwear and skate stores in LA. So it all kind of started together. We never made money off of the blog. You know, the first 10 years of the business were really like the blog years. It, you know, as everyone knows, social media kind of after in the 2010s took over that part of Web2. So we never made money off the blog. Like we never could figure out a way to do that. And not to jump ahead, but, you know, we just launched the blog chain. You know, it's the first on-chain blog. And so... Now there is a means to actually see some kind of revenue, uh, perhaps, if not some type of ownership on the blog. So. Nah, it's perfect. A perfect segue. And I, I got to give you credit too. A lot of people owe you money. I feel like there's so much stuff that broke from that <laughs> blog, in my opinion. And that goes from yeah. other streetwear brands to like, I learned about Lupe Fiasco off your blog, like stuff like that. Like there's all these elements of music and culture for me in New yeah. York and for a lot of New Yorkers, we were learning about like what was happening in LA and that scene through your blog at that point. And that to me, the segue of now having this on-chain blog and this way to monetize content and do it in a way that's very crypto native and very tech specific is interesting because you were building community before community. And that to me yeah. is everything that was happening on Fairfax that I knew nothing about when it was just the office that you guys had above what would become that first store or the second store. I'm not that's sure right. that. But that was like, yeah. all these characters were built out of that. And there was like Scotty and Corgi and these all these people that I remember from way back that you introduced. This was community before community. So when you see all this happening now, to me, it looks like it was part of this 10 and 15 year plan. Did you see this developing the way it did now? Did you see Web3 in a way that you knew that was a space the hundreds would be able to, to go into? Not I want to use dominate as the word, but enter a space with a pretty big project in Adam Bomb Squad, 25,000 PFPs and individual pieces, but that's 20 years of history in my mind. Did you see it getting to that point where you knew you were building this community that was going to be useful in the future? Oh my gosh, absolutely not. I mean, we were, if I had foreseen that this technology could exist one day, I think I would have been even better prepared for it. But um, what we are mindful of every day, uh, and I'm still kind of that way, a lot of people are asking my opinions of Web3 NFTs, like where are we going to be five years, 10 years from now? Even within our own project, the Adam Bomb Squad, you know, people want to see a roadmap, like what's happening in July, what's happening in November? And we have a schedule and calendar set for, you know, specific things and milestones. But as far as like where the space and the technology can go, like, I don't think that far ahead. I just really try to concentrate on what's in front of me and uh, what we're trying to do today, right? We've never written a mission statement for the hundreds. We never wrote a professional business plan. I know that is traditionally how successful businesses operate and grow, but it's just never been in our wheelhouse. We've always treated it, you know, for better or worse as like a real art project. And so it's very fluid, adaptable. And um, there are some years where we're really focused on a, a specific lane 
and it doesn't necessarily work out, but it's another step in our journey to get us to where we're going. The one thing that was really important for us and for us and critical for the hundreds since the very beginning, even if we couldn't put a finger on it, was that we knew that the people part of it, the human side, the community, the communal side, the culture side of the hundreds and streetwear were the most important pieces. At the end of the day, business is business. We got to move product. We got to, you know, commerce is key, is king. Well, of course, like in order for us to survive, we got to make money. But the why of what we were doing, you know, not just the what, like the why or the purpose and the reasoning um, for us was always driven by relationships, telling people stories, telling our story, relating, making people feel seen, connecting them into communities, making people feel heard, and really just putting on for a lot of other young artists that we felt weren't getting the representation that they deserved, right? A large impetus for the hundreds was we were watching New York. We were watching Tokyo in the early 2000s, late 90s, and we knew that in Southern California, in the LA scene, that there were just as many talented, innovative, thoughtful leaders that just weren't getting the recognition in the popular media at the time. A lot of the publishing houses were based in New York, and so the (coughs) the magazines were like covering the brands and designers in New York. And with blogging, we're like, well, now we can talk about the artists and the designers in our backyard that we're friends with, right? And so like telling the people stories and supporting other brands and like talking about other people and connecting them, like we knew that was the why of what we were doing. It was what motivated us and inspired us. And then as the brand started to flourish, we recognized, and this came really evident in the course of me writing my memoir, This Is Not a T-Shirt. Now, I'm telling the story of like how we built this brand in, in the hundreds and like why it is we did what we do. And then halfway through the book, I realized this has nothing to do with actual physical garments, it has nothing to do with like the fashion industry. It has all to do with like people's stories, my story, the, the, our audience's stories, our community stories. And so when Web3 came around, you know, and in late 2020, I was looking and just curious about the technology. And I realized probably like the heart of what it represented was taking care of the artists and it was about community. I was just like, oh my gosh, it's everything that we've ever wanted to do. And the the tools just weren't there. And so we were very patient, you know, the last 10 to 20 years waiting for something like this to, uh, to come around. And that's why I was, I became so impassioned by the idea because I was like, I've been waiting my entire career for this ability to, you know, be laid out in front of us. And so, um, and here we are. Nah, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a perfect way to put it in my mind is the idea that the passion turns into the business. And I think that you, you guys have done that really successfully. And that's something I think about a lot. And you've been you've been really good in sort of making sure again that the community is always a part of the movement and that they know it's not pure commerce. It's not a binary outcome where it's money over everything. That being said, it is a business too. So I I think about a moment, this was a while ago. I'm not even sure how long ago it was, but definitely a while ago. You put up an April Fool's Fool's joke on your blog that uh, Louis Vuitton, that LVMH had bought the hundreds. And the number was like 12 or $13 million. Obviously not even close to what it would be now. That being said, in tech, we have like the Tigers and the Kotus that they come in and they preempt rounds and they put huge checks in and they buy huge chunks of companies and they make really definitive moves. Over the last few years, LVMH and some of the other bigger players, they come in 
buy a chunk of Off White or VF buy Supreme. Uh, you know, LVMH just bought thirty percent of or something like that of uh, Emily on Door. There's this this elephant in the room with fashion and with community. Do you and they buy up the chunks? They do it aggressively. Not to say anything about the hundreds, but thinking about Adam Bomb Squad and NFTs. Do you feel like there's a chance that something similar could happen in this brand new space in Web three, where you have these big sort of the elephant in the room with the big checkbook comes in and has the ability to buy cool? Is that something we should be thinking about, be worried about? Do you see it happening now? Do you think that that could happen as more of these big brands and these big companies become aware of these communities that are being built that have a lot of value? Not only do I believe that it's going to happen, I'm already seeing it happen uh, to around us. Um, the larger institutions, the houses, uh, the larger corporations have already been knocking right and so um i won't divulge the the meetings and the phone calls and the zooms that we've been uh, taking and have been privy to um and what others projects and designers and artists in the space have been telling us as well um but they're there right and so um i think you're going to see a lot of investments acquisitions partnerships being made over the next year um because it's actually really, really hard for established companies to get into this space. And that's why we're still kind of one of the only ones, if not the best illustrated example of a brand and a company and an established like streetwear label who also is somehow maintaining a, an NFT project in a community like this. There aren't many. It's really hard to do. It's really hard for these Web2 brands and businesses or if they're from Web1 or if they're just like, they're just old school to number one, understand the space, figure out how to decentralize or work towards decentralization, involve or incorporate community into ownership or in terms of just having like some kind of voting rights. It's so um, oppositional, if not antithetical to how a lot of them are set up, right? Like, People talk about Supreme a lot because as far as cultural movers, they've probably been the most influential, what James and Supreme have built over the last 10 to 20 years. But in many ways, from my opinion and observation of what Supreme is, it's not the Web3 space and mentality is not necessarily friendly to a lot of the Supreme philosophy, which was, you know, the, the old school branding ideology is that it's very singular, you know, you have to, you have to tirelessly defend the trademark, you um, have like a really consistent point of view that is refined and reinforced over and over again, like this is just classical branding. And Web3 is uh, your customers, aka your community takes over, they dictate the course of the mission, you know, in some projects, they just hand over the intellectual property, which is the most important piece, the cornerstone of a brand, right? And so like, it's just going to be really interesting, because I know a lot of these companies are trying to get in because they are looking at it most of them are looking at it wrong. They see it as like a marketing play. It's not a marketing thing. The ones who understand it on a deeper level, um, it, it, it's going to require them a lot of work to turn that boat around. Now, we're kind of in a prime position because 
we've just never been like this really heavy corporation. It's still a mom and pop shop at the end of the day. Ben and I don't have any backers. We can do whatever we want with the business. And so we made a really conscious decision this time a year ago when we were building Adam Bomb Squad that we knew that we were taking our mascot, right? Like probably the most recognized icon within the brand. And also like in streetwear history, like it's definitely up there as one of the most recognizable logos and mascots. And we knew we made a really conscious, conscious decision between ourselves that as soon as this project launched that we were essentially handing it over to the world. Right. And it was, we were giving up our baby. And I, I just don't know if many corporations and brands and uh, designers are going to be willing to make this sacrifice for us. It was not just um, uh, uh, enticing for us. It was almost expected, if not really natural, because for 20 years, again, it's been a community-centered and community-driven brand, right? My book is literally called Building a Brand Around Community. And so, like, it was probably the most organic and authentic thing for us to do. But uh, for other brands and companies, it's they're not wired like that. So, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's one of those things where once the art is out in the world, it's not really yours anymore. It's up to the to the new owner or the or the receiver of it. The emotion that goes with it, it's theirs now, and it's theirs to decide. But you touched on something really important too, in that the atom bomb logo and the brand mark and everything that goes with it has so much nostalgia i think for me and for so many people that are from my generation and we're around the same age you're a little bit older but not, not that much but the uh the idea that like the first atom bomb that i bought really early right after the mint was the most basic one because that to me is this is a very specific moment in time and like the 2000s for me to have that one was like a really important one and those have kind of like moved up in price a little bit and the floor moved really dramatically with some of the earlier ones and you tweeted about it a little bit but where do you see, so like, you know, democratizing this space now, how do we avoid having the whole space where you have this, you in particular have this massively successful project, the prices are moving up. It's still accessible in my mind to a lot of people at Bomb Squad. But when you have new projects releasing all the time and the pre-reveal floor is five ETH or six ETH, how do we avoid creating a new cast system? where it's only whitelists, only friends, it's only something that requires $200 in gas. How do we let the, the projects that have that nostalgia, that have that meaning to people be accessible? Is there a way to avoid what is starting to happen now? Or is it something where there's going to just be two levels? There are always going to be many levels. I think because we're so early in the marketplace, um, people are going to be priced out of quote unquote, like the more interesting sensational projects. But, uh, you know, we're in my it's I know NFTs have been around for years, but really, to me, in theory, we're still in the first year. And so um, I think we're going to see this get fragmented over time. And there is going to be just a larger spectrum of what NFTs are, why we collect certain ones. You know, there are going to be those that are blue chip that are meant for specific reasons. They're going to be looked at as investments. Right. Most projects right now, people keep looking at it through that lens, like through a board ape or crypto punk lens of, I want to buy it as a piece of art. I want to see it increase in value. And that's really all it's for. Even though people beg for utility, at the end of the day, what re everyone just really wants is to see that they're making more money. Um, there are, Eventually, the narrative will shift and it won't just be about buying art to sell or collecting things to sell. When I look behind you on screen, like you have artwork up that is not just meant 
to sell, right? Like I collect a lot of art, like I have art just sitting on the floor behind me. Some of it I just have because I really love. Some of it I'm like, I'm going to hold it for 20 to 30 years. And, you know, maybe I give it to my grandkids or it pays for their college tuition. Um, but uh, most of it, it's, I just have and I don't think about every day. And right now, like everyone is treating their NFTs and just watching floor prices and logging on to OpenSea the first thing they, they yeah. do when they wake up in the morning. We're going to get past that point. And to be honest, I'm already kind of there. You know, I used to be like that a year ago. And now I'm like, I go like weeks without checking. Anything. I don't even check like our projects floor. I don't really care because I'm so we're so like long term vision with what this is. And we're also of the mindset that, you know, we're going to get to a place where people collect things because they're going to want to keep them. You know, I'm a big sneaker collector. Like, it sounds like, you know, you are too, Rob, right? So like we collect streetwear, collect sneakers. I don't sit there on StockX every day and just like watch the value go up and down and be like, all right, now's the time to sell it. You know, most of my sneakers, I just have them because yeah. like I want them. Even if I don't wear them, I just like, I just want it. That's what collectors are. Collectors, we collect. We're not sellers, you know? <laughs> That's it. There's no, it's, it's the, it's the, that's the nostalgia I'm talking about with, with the hundreds in particular. I think that yeah. you've always kind of lived that. Like, did you see, so when you bought the DeLorean, this was really early before it became a thing. Did you see that being a part of the brand and as an investment or was that something you just wanted to have it and it became a part of the brand at that point? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, for those people who don't know, like when I turned 30, um, <clears throat> I bought a DeLorean. It was the world's considered the world's best DeLorean. It only had 500 miles on it. And it was a dream that I had when I was eight years old and I was watching Back to the Future for the first time. And I said, if I ever get successful enough, I'm going to buy DeLorean. And it, I turned 30 and I was like, this is the time. And I never thought about selling that thing. And I definitely didn't think I was going to make a profit or a gain off of selling it, which I did about 10 years later. Um, I just loved having it. And so... When we get to a point, which it might be soon, might be later, where people buy NFTs just to have them, um, because we, again, we buy things to sell, but we also buy other things for different reasons, for utility, for what they say about us and our identity, because they provide access or affiliation with a community. There's like many reasons why you buy things. Some of it meant to sell. Most things you own, you don't check the price on them every day. So I think once that happens, um, we'll have a, a turning point. And then also the more that other projects on projects on other chains, like Solana projects or Matic projects or L2 projects, you know, like, and then one, once ETH2 and all this, like the emphasis around like gas prices and like, you know, the skyrocketing numbers of these things, it's going to, we're really going to shift. And um to me, it's, I'm so glad you asked that because it's the one thing that constantly weighs on me. Most of my community cannot get in. And so we intentionally devised a project where we have 25,000 to give people as much time to get in as possible, even though, to be fair, like even the mint price of $300 US in fiat is a lot of money. But we just calculated it like $300 was about an average sneaker price for like a good sneaker you'd flip on StockX. Like people can afford a pair of sneakers, they can buy JPEG, you know, and it just sat, you know, pretty close there for a long time. And we just said, like, we're giving people time to get on the boat. And eventually as the project gains steam and we start throwing more coal into the fire as far as utility and like more announcements, 
it's going to start leave the boat will start leaving the dock and it's it's kind of been doing that the last few weeks and we're still like i think some people are still like okay now it's now or never um but you know ideologically like philosophically we need to get to a place where there are more projects that are suitable just for people to be able to get in and play and have some because as we all know to really understand this space and to really appreciate it like you just have to you have to have some yeah you have to like, you you have just to, yeah, I, I mean i'll give you credit for that too because the the idea of that 25,000 piece project was unique at the time that was in a world of 10,000 unit pfp projects at that point but also and we talked about this a bit before the call not investment advice in any way, shape, or form, but it has been a, a steady increase in floor price over the course of the last three months or so. And I will say that, and that a lot of projects now are spiky. And and Adam Bomb Squad to me has always felt more like like the trajectory of a Jordan rookie card versus a, a Zion or, or one of the modern players because it has that nostalgia. It's got a little bit of that feel of I should hold on to this. I just want it. And to your point, we kind of price things at rally sometimes like that too, where it's the, the price of a sneaker, like a really nice sneaker that you want. That's a unit of measurement now for these kids. Do you think they get to the point where a 13-year-old, and I probably know the answer to this, this 13-year-old kid is looking at an atom bomb squad PFP or NFT of any kind and thinking about that the same way we thought about a, a grippy rookie card or something where it's like, I want to have this. I'm going to tuck this away. It's going to be something, but it's for me. Yeah, uh, 100%. I've been saying this a lot lately because my son is turning, uh, my older son is turning 13 this summer. He goes to school, they talk about apes, right? They're on open sea. My brother called me from Cambridge. You know, he has kids too. He has a he has a 13-year-old. And he's like, hey, he's into invisible friends. And it's the kids sit in the back of the class and they're just scrubbing open sea. They'll never be able to afford these. And I can't afford these either. I'm definitely not gonna hand them off to these kids. But it's the way that I admired Jordans and pumps when I was growing up. Like my parents were like, I'm not buying you that. Like I'm not paying like $75 for a sneaker. Like we're going to pay less, right? And I bought like Velcro Pro Wing sneakers or XJ900s or something like they were like $20 shoes at the swap meet. That's why I grew up wearing Chucks. It's the same thing with the kids. They're going to come to me and they're going to ask, dad, can you like, spend $200 on gas to get me like a $500 JPEG, I'm going to be like, are you crazy? Like imagine those conversations that people are having at home. Even <laughs> if the parents aren't into them, the kids are coming around. Dad, dad, can you sign up for a MetaMask wallet? Like I need an invisible friend. They're not going to get it, right? But in 10 to 15 to 20 years, when this generation grows up and they enter their careers and they're making money, guess what they're coming back for? Because these years, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer, of course. Like, whoever is setting that up uh, is is the one who's going to benefit yeah. the most from it. I know everyone right now is just like, dude, we're making a lot of money. $75 Air Jordans, Reebok pumps. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. In 15 to 20 years, StockX and, you know, whatever, yeah. you know, all the sneaker stores and resellers and round two, like that's the market. Like that's where you're going to make a lot of money. So like collect now, save and wait, you know, just like we do in the art world, like in the art collecting space is the same. Like I yeah. don't buy things to turn around and flip them in four weeks. Like I buy this stuff because I'm like, yeah, when I die, it's going to be worth a million dollars and I can pass that off to 
you know, my grandchildren and whatnot. So it's just like the long-term investments and holds. I think we all saw it happen with collectibles, with Beanie Babies and, you know, or um, here's a better example, like sports cards. And we were just like really frothy and flippy at the time in the 80s and the 90s. And then it died and we were like, well, it's done. Well, now, like if you have all those cards, like you really win, right? And so it's like, the, I think the smartest NFT players are, are going to be the ones collecting this first generation, this first year of projects, the ones that kids are just staring at all day and just holding them. And like when those kids turn 40 one day, they're going to come back around and be like, man, I need one of those JPEGs, you know, like I always wanted one. You know what's going to happen too? Uncle Bobby's still going to be the plug. That's for sneakers, for whitelist on visible <laughs> for DeLoreans, whatever That's it right. is. It's always going to be the plug. So you can yeah. get that text no matter what. Um, I mean, on that That's note right. too, like we... I do it with art too. And I buy what I love. A lot of it is, is what the art world would laugh at, but some of it I tuck away and I'm thinking about yeah. as an investment. If you can answer the question, like what is, and this is the back to, to the show and the concept and what we put together here, what is the, the best dollars that you've kind of put into whether you started as discretionary, but it turned into something that you love that you've held on to that you've looked at generationally outside of the couple hundred bucks spent to start the hundreds. Is there something that you have that you never anticipated would be the thing you held on to for 20 years that you want to have be generational. Um, and, and that it, it, it appreciated in like a dollar value. If it's in dollar value, which is one of those things that is so connected to you as a person now that it's part of your identity, you would never give it up for any amount of money. Are there any of those things that exist in your day-to-day -day life right now? I, um, I'm going to give a really boring answer to it. And, uh, and I would like to say that I am really not that emotionally tethered to anything material-wise. I love, obviously, I'm a collector, but I've also realized at some point in my life that if everything were to burn down, like, I just, you know what happened? This is why. I, um, when I was about 23, 24, it was right after we started the brand, I lived in this small apartment. I had, like, a collection of, like, 20 sneakers, which at the time was insane, right? Like early 2000s for a man to have like 20 pairs of sneakers. Uh, everyone was just like, oh, let's do a documentary about this. This is crazy. Like the idea that like people are collecting basketball shoes, like I've never seen that before, wild. Um, and so I had, you know, these sneakers and they were really important to me. Like they were given us gifts. They were birthday presents. They were, um, I traveled to Japan and buy, bought this pair. I got invited to an undefeated opening, got Jeff McFedridge vandal. And so um, I kept them in my closet. And one day I came home and the door was ajar and uh, everything was intact in the house. But I went into my closet and my sneakers were gone. And I just lost it, right? Like I'm freaking out. I'm thinking all kinds of vindictiveness. Like, how do I get retribution, right? I want to hurt whoever this person is. And I'm literally just sitting there, like, coming up with a plan of how I can, like, a, a, a violently uh, injure whoever did this to me. And, dude, I just sat there and all of a sudden I had this revelation, this breakthrough moment where I was like, it's just sneakers. I can't believe I got that riled up about sneakers. They're just sneakers. And it sucks. But like, I'll go out if I really want them, like I'll work hard and I'll get them again, you know, which some of them I ended up doing over the course of my life. But it was that moment for me where I was like, it's not the actual like for me, it's not the actual like ownership of anything, you know, like it's always been I liked it because I got to go to Undefeated 
and I went to this party and I met people and I have a really great memory associated with that. Like, I don't know if I actually need the physical product in order for that to connect for me. And so I'm like, the friends I made out of that night are like, no one can steal that from me. So they were kind of like, just the, the art was like symbolic, you know? And so um, I haven't, even though I collect a lot of stuff and I love it, it's like, it's more, they're just like signifiers and they're symbolic to me of memories. And so I like looking at it because I think of the memory, but I can also do it without the actual physical thing in front of me. No, nah, I mean, that's, we, we all, it's all part of the moment. Everyone lives for that moment. You know what I mean? I think that's re- yeah. reconnecting with those good moments is so much of what drives, it drives consumerism, but it really drives interests and new spaces and what's happening in community, especially in web three, it's experiencing it's the moment is being part of something big. So I can respect the answer for sure. I may have to name the episode. They're just sneakers. That was a good call. too. I think that's the right way to put it. The, uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll end with wanting to understand better. And we're, we're recording this before the Super Bowl, just for context. And it will come out after, Yeah. but there's something going on with the Super Bowl. There's a ton of things I'm sure in your personal life with the hundreds, what's next for you personally, what's next for the brand. Is it, is it more building what's happening right now? Or is there some secret magic secret sauce around the corner that we don't know about yet? that you can sprinkle a little bit into this conversation? Yeah, we have, um, God, we have like a multitude of, of paths in front of us right now on many scales and levels. One of the things at the top is for us to just dominate fashion in this space. And um, people are taking it pretty literally. Uh, metaverse fashion, everyone's trying to do metaverse fashion, like dressing your avatars and your your PFPs or whatever it is. Um, yeah, that's a part of it. But for me, it's redefining what fashion means uh, in this space and redefining what metaverse means. In fact, I don't even think there's a set definition for it right now. And, and so for us, you know, in my opinion, what metaverse means, is just a seamless existence between, you know, this physical world. Like I'm or we're already starting to do that. Like you speaking to me through the computer and I was really uncomfortable with this two years ago. <laughs> right? Before the pandemic, like doing any type of faith, like I was just not a FaceTimer. I didn't do interviews like this. I was like, uh, I'll just do the phone or like in person. Um, this now is a very seamless part of my life. Like you might as well be here in my room right now. Uh, it's, there's no distinction. And so um, that's the metaverse to me is that where our physical lives, what's happening on the internet, it's just like one and even. And so we're just building for a world, uh, building fashion for a world that looks like that. So whatever that means to, to someone. Um, and, and really hammering away at a bomb squad. I think we've just scraped the surface of what that project is and what it can mean. Um, you know, we're planning things that are one month out, five months out, five years out for this project. And so I think it's going to change materially over the course of time. I think by the end of this year, even people will be looking at this project very differently. And that's kind of the beauty and the allure of this entire space and technology is the goalposts are moving every single day. And so we get to write the rules every single day. Like we are rewriting what is possible, what is essential, what is what is the purpose of this project? You know, if you told me, if you asked me this question a year ago, like, why are you doing, why are you doing atom bombs gone? What's the purpose? It, it, the definition has changed, right? Like, and, and also why people bought NFTs a year ago, it's changed outside of just like, we want to make money. Um, you know, this time a year ago, it was art. And then over the summer it became utility. And then in the fall, it was NFTs are dead until late December. And then it was just like, they're back and bigger than ever. And at some point this year, it'll be like for gaming. 
and then it'll be for gambling and 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 you know other kinds of play like it's just it's going to keep going and so adam bomb squad keeps like adapting and reorienting itself because of that and like we're doing that as people and as creators as well so it's cool it's like it's really messy because we're all building the car as it's moving right the technology is moving so fast the infrastructure can't keep up the ideas are just happening faster than the actual applications of them so it's messy and there's going to be like lots of holes and like starts and stops it's going to be a lot of breakdowns in the process there's going to be long lulls and bear markets where people are trying to figure things out it's messy but um you know the ones who are committed to this and are excited about it are mm-hmm. like we love the mess like we love the the constant innovation the flow of like disruption um and so, like, that's how we treat Adam Bomb Squad. We're like, this is an experiment for everyone. We're all, it's, I call it the biggest bet. Like, just the whole thing. I'm like, this is the just the biggest bet. And, 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 and like, in a literal way, but really, like, we're all just putting everything on the line and saying, let's try. Let's try. Like, it's the biggest step of faith as a, as a human, as, as a movement that I've seen in, in my entire life that we're all taking the biggest bet. So um, I'm up for it. You know, it's, it's, yeah. Nah, I think everyone, ha- you have no choice but to be. It's, it's moving so quick and it's so consolidated the amount of time that things happen. Like you said, I think that's, that's where the best art and the best creativity and the best projects come from chaos. It's always been that organized kind yeah. of confusion and messy and it's a million different directions and all different tentacles. And then it becomes this thing that takes shape and was obvious the whole way. And I think you right. guys are really way ahead of it and turning that into something tangible and digital. And that goes for everything you guys have always worked on. So, I mean, part of me was hoping you were going to say uh, reopening another New York store, but I'll hold that for a different conversation some other time. But uh, or maybe the metaverse will meet there. But then, uh, yeah, man, last question. Do you actually sleep in a hooded sweatshirt? I do. It was funny. We were with someone the other day. Uh, I was with my wife and, we're, and someone asked. They were like, I just have to ask, do you actually sleep? And I just looked at her and she's like, he does. And yeah. I was shocked by the response of the commercial. Everyone's like, yo, that commercial is sick, but you don't really sleep in a hoodie. And I'm like, you should, I can't believe more people don't do it. It's like you're in a sleep, you're just like sleeping in a sleeping bag. It's like, it's perfect. Dude, it's been six degrees in New York. I'm going to give it a try this week. Uh, I appreciate the time. I'm a little bit of a psychopath because of it, but I do appreciate it, dude. I'm going to give it a try, man. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bobby Hundreds, sincerely appreciate it, man. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. Thanks. That was episode two with Bobby Hundreds, who, by the way, I based a lot of what we designed early with our merch, particularly with some of the app design, the color palettes, all that stuff on work that he did. And then when it comes to building in public, he's one of those people that really made it cool. So it was awesome to catch up and hear about some of that early work. His style is one that kind of lends itself to so much of the graphic style that we see now from everybody. And it's evolved so much over the years. All that's represented in the Atom Bomb Squad NFTs, which are kind of like a time capsule of all the different iterations and designs of the brand over the years. It's definitely worth a look if you haven't seen it. Big nostalgia there for me personally, too. On that same iterative early graphic illustration style that led to a franchise, we've got a couple of pieces coming to rally from another design legend, Matt Groening, the creator of The Simpsons. The rare 1993 Skybox sketch cards of Bart and Homer Simpson, both PSA 10, both $21,000 each, 
and both $7 per share. Both of those are opening up on Tuesday, April 19th at noon Eastern time. And a reminder, do not listen to me or anyone for investment advice. Always do your own research and be sure to read the disclaimer on rallyroad.com, rallyrd.com before making any investment on Rally in particular. All investments involve risk. This is no different and past performance is never an indication of future performance. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Rally and then on Twitter, we're at OnRallyRD. I'm Rob Petrozo. I'll be back next week with another new episode that's a nice mix of physical and digital. So it's got some Web3 in it, but also some good long-term investing stories wrapped up in it as well. Until next week.